0: Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you want to watch the interviews, go to YouTube and search for the North Star Unplugged channel. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website. At www.northstarsleepschool.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of North Star Unplugged. I'm your host Kristen Rainey, and I'm here today with Chip Conley. Some of you are undoubtedly familiar with Chip as the founder and CEO of the boutique hotel chain Joie de Vivre, or for his role leading hospitality for Airbnb. Or for his most recent career chapter, Developing Modern Elder Academy, he's a New York Times bestselling author, and his most recent book, Wisdom at Work, is, in my humble opinion, well worth your time. Chip, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here.
2: Kristen, it's an honor, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: So one of the key themes of this podcast is around transitions and transformations, and clearly your two health scares are very relevant first with your flatline experience and then two years ago being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Can you tell us at a high level what happened at each since some listeners might not be familiar with your story?
2: (laughs) Yeah, they probably are not. Um, So uh, let's start with the one that happened in August 2008. Um, I was going through a very difficult time in my life in all kinds of ways. The Great Recession was coming on, long-term relationship ending, foster son who was an adult going to prison wrongfully, um, running out of cash. And not wanting to be doing what I was doing anymore in terms of something uh, I'd been doing for 22 years at that point, which was being CEO and founder of Joad of Eve. And then um, I broke my ankle playing baseball at a, at a bachelor party for a guy named Gavin Newsom, uh, who's now the governor of California. And he was mayor of San Francisco then. And I got a bacterial infection in my leg that I wasn't aware of. And next thing I knew, I was on an antibiotic that I was allergic to. So everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And it led to a flatline experience, which <clears throat> basically means I went to the other side. I saw, you know, I was dead and I was brought back to life by uh, paddles. And actually the first time it happened, I went flatline multiple times. The first time I didn't have the paddles, the paramedics didn't have a mountain time. I, I hit my heart after about five seconds came back. Um, but the second, third, and fourth time, there are paddles involved. And I don't mean paddles to the fanny. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean paddles to the heart. Um, so what um that experience woke it was like the wake up call for a hotelier and the wake up I needed was you know what chip um you don't want to do this anymore uh, it had been a calling being CEO of my company for 22 years and it had become a job and I was it was not what I wanted to do anymore and the flatline woke me up to saying I have other options and so over the next two years, in the midst of a very deep recession, I plotted my way, you know, figured out a way to sell my company, um, which I never thought I would do. Um, so it, it accelerated what needed to be done. Um, and my life got better. And interestingly enough, um, that led me, soon after that, after I'd sold the company, to having the three uh, founders of Airbnb approach me. Now, let's be clear that if I had still been CEO of my own company, they would not have approached me and said, hey, Chip, we want you to help us democratize hospitality. We're a little tech startup. We have this great idea. It's growing quickly. Um, <clears throat> we want you to be the mentor to Brian, the CEO, and be the head of global hospitality and strategy. They would never have even approached me, nor could I have said yes. But I had some space in my life. And sometimes you have to create space to see what will emerge. And um, That experience, four years of full-time, very full-time, hours a week kind of full-time life for a company that was a rocket ship that I was helping them steer, um, led me to writing the book, uh, Wisdom at Work, which you mentioned. And it was the day after my book launch in New York, September of 2018, and the day before I was giving a TED Talk at TED headquarters that you can see on the TED.com site. That I found out I had prostate cancer, um, and my 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 urologist had said, "Listen, I don't think you have a problem. There's a twenty percent chance you have a problem." And he called me in the between those two days in September of 2018. He said, "I I was wrong. It's it was not twenty percent. It's much greater, and it's a serious. You have serious intermediate stage cancer here, and and what that did for me is it helped me to see. Okay, I was back to you know." acceleration, 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 because we were launching a Modern Elder Academy about six weeks later, and we'd, after six months of beta testing it, and, um, and I, instead of going and trying to do our second location or trying to do a major real estate development we were going to do, I stepped away from both of those and said, let me give myself some time to see what my body is telling me relative to this cancer. And over the next year, yeah, I worked my—I worked really hard. <laughs> I still worked hard, but I—I I really kept the scope in line. And I—and I'm our campus is here in Baja, in Mexico, on a beach. It's a spectacularly beautiful place. Um, I started learning how to sleep better. I, I um, and I started to just take care of my my body and also learn from nature a little bit more. And um, the good news is now two more than two years later, uh, my cancer has not grown at all in the last two years. But it's also in certain parts of my prostate has actually gone into remission, and without any radiation, um, but just mostly uh, taking care of myself. So,
1: well, it sounds certainly like your flatline experience accelerated your departure from from de vivre. Um, and you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about your time at Airbnb. Um, I believe I'd heard in one of your many interviews that um, you know, if some of your core responsibilities there had been a little bit more flexible or less demanding, it might have given you a little bit more time to mentor some of the younger colleagues who were increasingly coming to you for guidance, and you might have stayed longer had that happened. It sounds like you really had full, two full-time roles while you, were, while you were there.
2: I had probably 10 full-time roles, but... <laughs> Yeah, over the course of the last eight years since being at Airbnb, so, so I've been a strategic advisor for about four years now, after four years full-time, uh, I've had more than 100 mentees. Now, I call, we I say we're mentors because we're both mentors and interns at the same time. We're, because I'm, yes, I'm older than every single one of them, but I'm learning as much from them as they are from me most of the time. But yes, your point is correct. <clears throat> if because I had wisdom to offer, and I think rather than hitting people over the head with it and the people saying, "You know what, okay, boomer, I don't want to hear your advice," more like having them sort of observe me and then say, "I like what he's got he's got some he's got some qualities. I want to go and talk to him about you know learning from him a little bit more, if the company had shifted the way they thought of me instead of being a functional leader, overseeing a bunch of major initiatives in the company and having a ton of direct reports that I had to to address while at the same time having a lot of people from all over the company wanting my wisdom wanting to tap into my wisdom I, if they just if they gotten rid of the first part and said chip just do the second part I would have been maybe the first modern elder in any you know tech company whose only job was to spread wisdom and and help people cultivate and harvest their wisdom um, but that wasn't a language I had, nor did the company have. And so my only way to solve for that was ultimately say, I've loved it, but I, I want space in my life. And um, let's have me be an advisor. So um, I, I do think I have some hope that in the future, we're going to start to see companies getting smart, that instead of having their institutional wisdom walk out the door when someone's going to retire, and there's so much value in that person, uh, assume there is value. You know, some people are retiring and they're like, they, they hung it up 10 years ago. There's not much to, for them to offer. Um, but if you've got somebody who's really of value, you, do, you don't have to say, okay, on Friday, you get your gold watch and on Monday, it's cold turkeys. You're not working at all. There probably is a part-time role for you in a strategic advisor, in a mentor, or in a sort of culturally wise role. There's actually... I wrote a blog post about this yesterday about the resident wise woman in the company. Wouldn't it be great if companies said we need a resident wise man or a resident wise woman in the company who can actually provide a bit of a cultural statesperson role um, around, around how the company's culture and strategy can evolve and how people can learn to be more emotionally intelligent as they grow older because that is one of the qualities that we get better at as we age.
1: So I'd love to talk a little bit more about your role as a strategic advisor at Airbnb. So clearly, there's been a dramatic downturn in travel due due to COVID, um, which must be enormously challenging for an entity like Airbnb. How have you been helping the founders navigate these tough waters?
2: Well, it's been fascinating because um, I still own hotels as well. So I still own the real estate of some hotels. So uh, seeing how the hotel industry has just been devastated Uh, and then experiencing that as an owner writing checks to keep them open. And then, at the same time, seeing Airbnb get devastated for about two months and then recover quickly, partly because Airbnb has a platform that allows it to adapt, but partly because of a lot of good decisions that senior leadership, especially Brian as the CEO, who I'm still mentoring, um, has made. And I think the main thing I I really tried to emphasize is people – people want to shelter in place, but not necessarily at home. So how are you morphing the platform so that it's more oriented to extended stays? Because a, let's say a family of five, you know, live in San Francisco and, and they actually just, they know they're going to be being sheltering in place for a few months. Like give them an option in a place that they want to be where there's nature and There's spaciousness, and there's a, a safe enough environment for them to feel like, wow, let's just decamp from our home for two months and and go live there. And so, pricing needed to change in terms of how do you do, you know, monthly pricing or weekly pricing, <clears throat> whereas Airbnb's historical model was almost you know, solely built on a nightly pricing model. Um, so, you know, it, there's a lot more to it. But there, um, you know, the good news for Airbnb is they've shown that. Certain kinds of travel are still doing well.
1: I actually have a San Francisco couple doing exactly that, staying at my Airbnb here in Bozeman this winter for three months and working from here. So, there uh, you go.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's all about internet, though. I would say it's all. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that Airbnb's had to do is like, okay, if you, mm-hmm. you know, going for two months and doing being a digital nomad without good Wi Fi is not, not good. So, that, that is, you know, another little wrinkle that I think they've learned.
1: Yeah, that's a deal breaker for sure. So, um, while you were leading Joie de Vivre, you figured out that a key way to get hotel bookings with rock and roll bands was to incentivize the tour managers with free massages for booking your hotel rooms. And then at Hotel Fidale, you built a yoga studio on the rooftop for guests, uh, which at the time seemed crazy to others, but proved to be a huge winner in attracting guests and getting good PR for the property. Have you identified any unrecognized needs already at Modern Elder Academy?
2: Yes. Um, so this is, uh, I, I appreciate you having done your homework, Kristen. So great, two great examples that no other hotel in San Francisco is offering. And, and, and that's really, at the end of the day, for an organization, or even for, as an individual, you want to know what's your essence. What's the differentiator that makes you different than everybody else? Um, so for the Modern Elder Academy, which really is dedicated to helping people in midlife repurpose themselves and reimagine their lives, uh, how to cultivate and harvest their wisdom, and shift their mindset on aging. Um, we call it long life learning, not just lifelong learning. What we've helped people to do is to see that they can change their mindset, um, even if the world's you know, approach to ageism hasn't changed. And I think that's an unrecognized need that, it, that people didn't have, that didn't realize they could, they could do. Additionally, people are more thirsty for community than they know not just during COVID times, but pre-COVID times. Um, The idea you have a a cohort of 18 people that you're becoming best friends with for over your week workshop together. And then that cohort stays together and has a Zoom call every week if they choose to. Um, And there's regional cohorts where I can meet other people. We've had 750 alums from 25 countries, 24 countries go through the program. So that sense of community is important. And I I, got to say that another one that even... Some people come here looking for it, but some people don't. But now they come here and then realize they, they sort of like stumble upon it. It's just um, feeling a sense of purpose in life and how elevating it is. You know, um, when you feel a sense of purpose, you feel elevated and in why you're here on earth. Um, you, you understand your why a little bit more. And um, we help people learn that not by teaching it to them, because I, I don't believe that wisdom is taught, it's shared. And it's, so it's how do you create the collaborative conversation with a collection of other people who are in the midst of transition as well so that we all become better for it.
1: Chip, I'd love to uh, talk a little bit about your self-care. And it, you know, it seems you were already quite health-conscious prior to your two health scares you mentioned earlier. What's changed, if anything, about your own self-care as far as diet, exercise, meditation?
2: So... I've always loved to meditate. And so that's something that I've just amplified in my life. Yoga was always troublesome for me because I was always comparing and contrasting everybody else in the room. And I'm not that limber by (laughs) by nature. So um, I committed to one-on-one yoga with our mindfulness teacher here at uh, MEA. Um, Beyond that, uh, I, I cut out a lot of sugar from my diet and cut out most of the red wheat meat. I wasn't eating much anyways, but You know, I also cut out a lot of my dinners, so I do a little bit of intermittent intermittent fasting. Um, Beyond that, uh, I've also worked on my sleep. I think are we going to talk about sleep later, or should we talk about now?
1: Let's talk about it now. I'd love to hear what's going well. I
2: have this little machine. This is a this is a sleep square machine. It actually keeps track of my sleep. so it, it's it's right next to my bed, um, and it, there's a um, an app on my phone that allows me to keep track of how did I sleep last night. Now it sounds like a parlor game or like something like not very scientific, but it's really scientific. It's actually you know pretty well regarded. It breaks down your sleep based on uh, REM, our REM sleep versus light versus deep. It helps you understand how many disruptions you had during the night etc. Um, of course, there's a lot of sleep habits. I'm doing a terrible sleep habit right now. I am doing this podcast from my bed, <laughs> which, which basically means I have my laptop on my but part of, the, part of the reason I'm doing that is because in here at meA in my home, which is in the center of it, weirdly the best signal I get for for video calls is in my bed. But I never do it at nighttime and and to be honest with you i my the the sleep score machine has helped me in the following way. I think I sleep less than I do sleep. Now I'm not a great sleeper. That's a, let's start with that. I just that's a mindset. And and okay, I'm not a great sleeper. Dot 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 yet. So whenever you say something and you have a mindset that sort of shuts you down, add the dot 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 yet. So I'm not. I've never been. I've not been a good sleeper historically. Dot 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 yet. What and I've done a lot of protocols on it, but um, I've done, you know I've gone to the UCSF sleep lab. Um, but what this has helped me to do is realize that I think every time I wake up, <laughs> that I have I'm up for an hour or two. When I'm up for like ten minutes, who knows? You know, you're in this dream state, so it's like you don't even know. So what it's helped me to do is see that yes, I don't sleep eight hours a night. It's just I, don't, I may not be built for that, and as we get older, it's harder to sleep, and I'm turning 60 uh, very soon. Um, but what it's helped me to see is that for me, um, as long as I've got a good amount of REM, some REM sleep, and um, a good amount of deep sleep, that the, the quantity I have total matters less. So, you know, on average, I sleep about six to six, six and a quarter hours a night. Um, that sounds really like not enough. And it's probably not. And sometimes I have to have an eight-hour sleep just to sort of you know, get me fully back. But can I get by on six and a half to seven hours of sleep? Really well. Six is testing me a little bit. Um, but as long as a large percentage, a moderate-sized percentage of that six hours is good for my body and good for my mind, um, I seem to do Okay.
1: And you feel good in the morning. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I with do. all of our data and tracking, at the end of the day, you know,
2: I feel great in the morning. Yeah. I go to sleep early. I, I wake up very early. Um, I stopped taking Advil PM every night, uh. <laughs> which, of course, was not a good idea. But it was—I was addicted, um, more psychologically than anything. Um, now I, I just take natural supplements that help me, and sometimes I don't take anything. Um, and yeah, I. I feel more rested. I'm a little, you know, when you're in Mexico, like I am, siestas are a big deal. Um, And uh, so I occasionally take a siesta and and that helps. But, you know, I only do that if I didn't have a very good night's sleep. If I slept pretty well, I don't want the siesta because it sort of messes with my sleep, sleep rhythm.
1: So it's interesting you were mentioning with intermittent fasting that you tend to go the route of skipping dinner, which is different from a lot of people I know who find it Most easier people, to yeah, skip breakfast. Yeah. So, But I think that from a sleep perspective, um, that's really fantastic to be going to bed without yeah, I, a lot of food in your belly.
2: How do those people in Barcelona have dinners at <laughs> midnight and then go to bed and work the next day? I was like, I don't understand it.
1: Do you still do a three-day cleanse that you mentioned in Wisdom at Work?
2: I I do on occasion. I used to do it every season, mm-hmm. once a quarter. Um, I don't do that anymore, but, but I I do do cleanses um, for typically three to three and a half days. Um, I, I would say on average about once a year.
1: And when were you able to carve out time to to write your books when you were working full time? Was it Sundays or early morning? morning? Early
2: morning. Uh-huh. I am a, I, So my writer wakes up before my editor. <laughs> my writer wakes up before my editor. So. Early in the morning, I'm taking dictation from something way beyond myself. So I just sit in front of, I do, I meditate, and then I sit in front of my laptop and I just go for it. And it's amazing how much I can do, how generative I can be when I'm not editing it. I'm just writing it. And so, uh, yes. So you have to. I mean, if you're a writer, you better know. Number one is what spaces do you like writing in? I mean, some people love writing in a cafe. I'm the opposite. I, I want a lack of distraction um, and uh, I, I want, yeah, I, I don't want distractions. Um, what time of day, what are the other activities that help it for me going for a run on the beach with my dog <clears throat> is like I get a download and then I come back and I can write. So I don't usually do that first thing in the morning. I, I wake up when it's still dark. I'll write. Then when is, the sign comes up, I might go for a run with the dog come back, write some more because I get another download. So it's like I got a download in my sleep that I need to go and meditation. And then I go and do my writing. And then I go off and do my run and I get another download and I come back and do my writing. And then I've done maybe my two to three hours in the morning of writing. and But it feels like six hours of writing in the sense of how much I got done.
1: Well, it didn't go unnoticed to me that when we were scheduling this, your assistant offered 6 a.m. as a time slot, um, which, which I didn't take, <laughs> but um, it, it does seem clear that you are an early morning person. Um, yes. So I want to dig into um, Modern Elder Academy a little bit more. And obviously, you've already mentioned uh, quite a bit about it, but um, you know, you, you've said that a modern elder is as curious as wise. Um, what are you curious about right now?
2: Uh so so yeah, curiosity and wisdom. So, so a modern elder is somebody who's uh, got the perfect alchemy and knows when to up the ante of one versus the other. Um, I right now I'm really curious about uh, how do we cultivate and harvest wisdom? How do we help people in midlife feel like they're relevant still? And that um, how do we create you know a societal recognition that? Um, adolescence and middle-essence, middle, essence, middle essence being in the middle of your life, are two bookends of the same thing. There's, when you go through physical and emotional and hormonal changes, and yet we have z- almost zero society support for the hormonal middle-essence changes that people go on go through, the ones that are most obvious for women, but also, they also happen for men. And um, how do we create schools, tools, and rituals for people to feel like they're going through a transition that is normal. (laughs) Um, And so that's I'm curious about that. Um, I'm curious about learning my Spanish because I learned French when I was in high school, even though I lived in Southern California, which led to me calling my company Joie de Vivre, but didn't help me very much when I moved down here uh, to Baja, which is where I live most of my time. Um, You know, I think I'm curious about collective effervescence Uh, a phrase that came out of Emile Durkheim who studied religious pilgrimages and and my belief that I actually think society needs communal joy, collective effervescence. And when when it's starved of it, it actually has um, a reaction. And I think we're sort of in a state of that reaction right now. Um, uh, Collective effervescence is what happens is when a person, when a group of people are together, feeling a sense of common mission and in a certain awe about what they're experiencing Um, and their sense of ego separation dissolves and what comes in its place is this collective effervescence, this communal joy. Um, I've seen it at MEA. I've seen it as a board member of Burning Man. I've seen it, you know, in all kinds of ways. Um, And I, so those are some of the things I'm curious about.
1: (laughs) Do you think it's just in the U.S. that aging needs a rebranding?
2: I think it's the whole Western world. Um, I, I, I do think that, you know, um, we used to ask grandpa and grandma, you know, about things. And now we ask Google. And, you know, I've, got, I've got a little iPhone in my hand. And, and so I think the, the fact that with the Western societies are more ageist than, say, the Eastern societies, as in Japan, China, Korea, Taiwan, that's true. And, and Latin American societies, societies are less ageist as well. I do believe that those Asian societies, which are extremely reliant on technology and um, their smartphones, the smartphone has led to an acceleration of ageism in places like Korea um, and Japan. So um, yes, the Western society, Western uh, world in the US specifically are probably the worst at this, uh, but it's, it's a pervasive thing globally. Um, I think the good news is that with a, a world that's where we're all living longer, um, I think we're in the midst of a, a, an evolution that's happening where we're realizing that we need intergenerational collaboration like we've never had before. We have some vexing major problems in this world that aren't going to be solved by any singular generation. And um, so I think an intergenerational potluck <laughs> uh, is in order, and I think we're going to see more of that in the future.
1: In what ways do our brains get better as we age?
2: So we know that our memory goes away. We know that we're not as quick. But the thing that a lot of people don't know is that as you age, your brain starts to, to learn the, the, left, uh, the uh, left brain, right brain tango. So it, it, you're doing this, ten, this four-wheel drive of your brain because you get better at being able to adapt from being lyrical to logical all in the same sentence. So what does that mean? It means that whereas you're young, you're, you can be exceptionally focused. As you get older, you're better at systemic thinking, holistic thinking. You, you connect the dots. Um, we call this crystallized intelligence uh, versus fluid intelligence. So the crystallized intelligence allows you to be able to see things that other people can't see. Um, and this is why futurists often are really much older than the average population, uh, And it's part of the reason why becoming a mentor as you get older um, is actually a real value because you can actually see you're a first-class noticer of other people. You can see things that other people, that aren't noticeable to other people. You can see the collateral costs and benefits of things.
1: For how many years had Modern Elder Academy been brewing in the back of your mind before you launched? Um, I know that you had an urban retreat resort idea back when you were in business school at Stanford. Was that the seed of this?
2: (laughs) I love it. You've done you've done your homework. Um,
1: there's a lots of research. You know,
2: it's a great question. You know, the recesses of our mind is like a, a ghetto we don't go to very often. Um, and so it's hard. It's a hard question to answer with certainty. I, 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 there's no doubt. My background as somebody who started going to the Esalen Institute, the famous personal growth retreat center in Big Sur, California when I was 22 um, and then became a hospitality executive. So I have a personal growth retreat background, hospitality executive, interested in wellness. And then I've got this curriculum that I sort of was testing in my head when I was writing, uh, making the w- wisdom at work. So I've, it's like, I've, pre- I've prepared myself for this moment. And I, frankly, I think the society needs this moment. So there's something called Ikigai, which is, this Japanese approach to thinking about how you match what you have to offer the world with what the world needs. So I, I, yes, this has probably been cooking for a while, but on a conscious level, I didn't think of the modern elder Academy, uh, the world's first midlife wisdom school until it was June or July, 2017. We opened with the beta program, July, January of 2018. So it happened quickly. It happened that, Process of opening it happened quickly, and um, so I think there was a lot of work being done there over the past few decades. Such that when I finally became conscious of it, um, it was easy to put it in place.
1: And was it obvious uh, that it was going to be based in Mexico and in Baja specifically?
2: Not at all. Um, I did not come. I would only been to Baja, uh, Southern Baja, once when I first came here nine years ago. I'd been into Cabo San Lucas. 34, 33 years ago. And it was like a little dusty town. So, but I had two friends who wanted to come down here for Christmas, New Year's break. Um, and I came down here and sort of got charmed, uh, a little bit enchanted, in fact. Um, and so I started spending more time down here. I decided I'd buy a home, a small home on the beach, renovate it. And it'd be my second home, my first second home. And um, I did that. Not knowing that I was going to actually want to create a whole campus around my home. So I now own 10 properties, uh, land and homes around my home that makes up the campus. And um, yeah, there was no plan. As it turns out, it's been a pretty good location. I mean, uh, the airlift into Los Cabos Airport um, as an international airport is pretty strong. I mean, right now, nothing's strong because of COVID, but generally, it's pretty strong. It's really strong for the West Coast, for LA, San Francisco, et cetera. Really strong from Houston, you know, Atlanta. Um, lots of direct flights, so that helps. Number two is, it's a great culture, um, you know, Mexican culture, Mexican food. Really, a, a great, beautiful place for people to actually sort of imagine their life. Um, an affordable place for us to help get it off the ground. Uh, because of the cost of construction and cost of um, operating here, uh, which is good if you're doing a startup, Um, but also a good place for people to actually retire to. And we've had lots of people come here and say, like, I love being here. How can we stay here longer? We have a project called Baja Sage, which is where they can go live if they want. Um, And the big piece about it that I never would have thought of is the fact that we're in a foreign country, that a person, you know, only 3% of our, uh, 25% of our people who come are people of color, so we, are very, we have a really great outreach program and uh, pretty generous scholarships and, and, and lots of ways that we try to really connect it with people who don't normally come to a personal growth retreat center. Um, but what's been interesting, 97% of our people are not coming from Mexico and they're not commuting. So the fact that people are going, coming often from the U.S. or from Canada or from you know one of 24 countries They're coming here, and they're in a foreign place. And that's really valuable if you're going to make change in your life. Because if you're you're doing things that are habitual, um, and you're not all in, and you're not sort of a little bit liminal to be in limbo, um, it's harder to make change in your life. And so uh, being in a foreign place has been helpful.
1: And how has Modern Elder Academy had to pivot in 2020 with COVID?
2: So we shifted to doing something called sabbatical sessions and their minimum two weeks stay. Lots of people are choosing to come for a month or even longer. Um, and, and sabbatical sessions is all based upon the premise that you're going to self-curate your experience so you can opt in to, to some of our programming or not. We have three meals a day, um, but we also have yoga and we have meditation and we have actual in-classroom, but it, all the classroom work is now outside and in, in shaded areas that are uh, outdoors, which makes it a lot safer. Um, And you can go for a hike or a mountain biking trip on your own or with others, but it's sort of a little bit more freeform um, and and allows people to come for an extended stay, which means we don't have a revolving door of people coming, which is a bit dangerous with having that many people coming through a campus every single week. We usually have 18 people come, they arrive on a Sunday, they leave on a Sunday, and then there's another one that comes Sunday night again. Um, So this allows for a little bit more stability.
1: Chip, you must be relieved that you got in your world tour of music festivals before COVID. And I know we could spend a a whole episode uh, talking about those 36 festivals in 20 countries in the year, Um, but for today, were there any specific moments, events, or learnings during that time that inspired you enough to incorporate them into the MEA experience?
2: Hmm. You know, um, there are a few, I mean, I think ritual, I think ritual is really important. And um, there was a a festival I went to called lightning in a bottle uh, in California. And there was a a camp there where people were letting go of mindsets, letting go of things that no longer serve them. And they were, writing it on a piece of paper and then saying it to the collection of people who they were doing this with and then putting it in the fire. And that, that's actually a ritual we have here. We call it the great midlife Evit, And it's after your first 24 hours here and you're ready to let go of some things and let go. And And we do that at sunset. So people can sort of feel like it's the sunset of something that they're letting go of. And you know that idea came from a, a festival but I would just say <clears throat> the stuff that I loved at the festival my favorite experience at uh, during that year was going to Mahakumamela which is the largest festival of uh, in the world it 's a Hindu festival at the Ganges river that happens every twelve years every three years a smaller version but the big ones every twelve years a hundred million people over the course of fifty five days so that was fascinating is how do you create a temporary city that on its peak day has 35 million people that normally is just a, a you know, a, <clears throat> it's just nature. It's just sort of, it's actually, frankly, a part of the Ganges River that is usually under, submerged underwater. Um, so that was fascinating, is to see how cooperation and people coming together to create something and feel that sense of collective effervescence as a result of it.
1: In your 2010 TED Talk, uh, you discussed your pivotal trip to Bhutan, um, which definitely piqued my interest as I lived there for part of 2005 to 2006. And, of course, Bhutan's gotten a lot of attention uh, for using gross national happiness to measure success rather than GDP. And you noted in your TED Talk that your time in Bhutan made you realize how critical it is to consider the intangibles when we think about a business's success or a country's success. What are one or two intangibles you've focused on either at MEA or in your own life?
2: Well, I'll start actually just a quick point. I In my business, after I came back from Bhutan, I really looked at how are we measuring both employee and customer loyalty? <clears throat> and how are we measuring when I joined Airbnb belonging? Because the, the mantra for Airbnb soon after I joined, because we did a, an exercise that helped us skip there with, with a bunch of us, was Airbnb is in the Belong Anywhere business. So how do you measure belonging? So in my own life, um, I, I often look at, at any point, if I didn't live, it's like, uh, it's, it's the George Bailey effect. So George Bailey was, was the guy in um, It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart. And when he's about to throw himself off the bridge and kill himself, um, Clarence, his angel, uh, says, let me show you this movie of what the world would be like if you hadn't existed. And I think we all need that. We all need our George Bailey effect, this sense of like, wow, what, what is it that I've done that has made, created a legacy, whether it was having a couple of kids and helping them grow into you know, a, a successful and healthy and happy adults, um, so I, or whatever it is. So for me, the intangible that I'm looking at is I am what survives me. So what is it that is my legacy? What is it that I am providing to the world that wouldn't have been here otherwise? That's an intangible. Um, And I think here at at the Academy, uh, I've looked at how do we measure people's sense of transformation in their life. You know, would you have felt as transformed in your life if you hadn't come to MEA? And if the answer is no, then we're doing our, our job right. Um, So,
1: And you have a happiness equation of your own?
2: I have a happiness equation that's in my book, Emotional Equations. um, And that is, and I learned this in Bhutan, uh, happiness is wanting what you have divided by having what you want. Wanting what you have is a form of gratitude. So, and having what you want is a form of gratification. So in essence, happiness equals gratitude divided by gratification.
1: And I know that in preparation for coming to Modern Elder Academy, that guests do an identity cleanse. Can you share more about that? Yeah,
2: it's a way of trying to get clear on what is it that you're ready to let go of, whether it's being the hero or the caretaker in the family, whether it's um, a set of mindsets around how the world works that frankly don't make sense anymore. Whether it's the fact you were CEO of a company that you left five years ago, and you still feel like you're the CEO of the world, bossing people around, and it doesn't seem to be working so well, because you're not the CEO anymore. You're actually senior vice president of a company, or you actually don't even have a job. And so the identity cleanse is asking yourself, what is no longer serving you? What part of your identity that you still are carrying around with you just isn't working? And... Um, and you need to let go, and this is what leads to this great midlife edit um, with the fire, with the pieces of paper in the fire.
1: In wisdom at work, you note that we're probably all misperceived at work. Uh, people see us one way, but we're actually different from that. And I'd love to ask you this: um, what's what's the most common way you're misperceived, Jip?
2: Well, and it's happening right now because of the way I've portrayed myself. Here I am, white t-shirt, you know, in bed spirit animals behind me (laughs) um you know written books about self-actualization my book peak is all about that started a company called joie de vivre joy of life so the natural tendency to look at chip and living in paja he's just a laid-back guy he's so easygoing and laid-back and the truth is this that i'm pretty driven pretty competitive pretty type a um So I so how I'm misperceived is people see me as potentially just a sort of a nice kickback, laid back guy, or person, and the reality is, yeah, I'm a pretty nice guy. I I mean, not a lot of people would say I'm a jerk, but they're shocked by how intense I am, especially if you're working with me. So, and that's a bit of that is a shocker for some people, and a little. Unnerving because they thought they were joining a company in a culture that is just sort of casual and everybody's easygoing. And like the cultures I've been involved in and helped to curate and probably embody because of my role as a senior leader or running the company is that the companies are pretty intense, they're intense in positive ways. <clears throat> but they're often very aspirational. And so if you just sort of want to kick back, you know, probably not the right company.
1: What will modern Elder Academy look like in five years' time?
2: I love our <clears throat> our vision of a regenerative community, the idea that you have a regenerative farm, you have a MEA campus with two cohorts happening simultaneously, autonomously. Um, you have a cultural center focusing on the indigenous culture of where these academies are located. And then you have housing and like a village format around it. Um, some of the people with their primary home, some of them with the secondary home and the people who have it as their secondary home, put their home back in a rental pool so that people who want to come and do a sabbatical or a gap year can come for an extended stay and have a little taste test of the program <clears throat> without having the full workshop program. Um, that's what it looks like, and I would like it to be a model for midlife wisdom schools around the world. I'd like to have have a few of these out there, um, and I would love to have some of them uh, attached and related to schools of higher education. Because if you think about higher education right now, my God, this is a, 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 a an industry that is seriously being disrupted pre COVID, and then COVID's just thrown it for a loop as well. So why is it that we our higher education in the United States is predominantly, if not exclusively focused on people who are 18 to 22 or 25, um, when in fact there's a bunch of people who are 45 to 65 um, and younger and older than that, who desperately need a a pit stop to actually refuel themselves and reimagine themselves and then repurpose themselves. So that's what I'd like it to be.
1: Uh, I know you have board seats with Encore.org and with the Stanford Center on Longevity, which both seem really well aligned with what you're doing at MEA. Can you share any current initiatives that are underway at either of those that you're particularly excited about? Well, at Encore,
2: the, the organization's really in a major shift right now where it's more and more focused on intergenerational collaboration. And there's a program called Gen2Gen, Gen to Gen, uh general like generation to generation. Um, and... I would say, as people look at Encore two or three years from now, they're going to say, "Wow, they made a major pivot um, to be not so much focused just on people later in life and how they feel that sense of Encore, you know, about what they're going to do in their life, especially in a social purpose kind of way." But it's more like how do the generations come together? So that's exciting. I, I'm a big fan of that. My experience at Airbnb really woke me up to, and and with Burning Man and all kinds of things I've been involved in. I've been working in intergenerational environment a long time. Stanford Center on Longevity, uh, the thing that most excites me there is the roadmap for life, uh, a new map of life. Um, <clears throat> the map of life we've historically had was based on the premise that we had three stages. Um, you have this learning period to 25 or so, or 22. You have this earning period to sixty 65. And then you have this retire period. Um, or as Rumi said, uh, 750 years ago, the famous... Uh, Persian poet, um, uh, your life can be summed up in three phases. I was raw, I became cooked, and then I burned. (laughs) So learn, earn, burn. (laughs) Learn, earn, uh, I think it's learn, earn, return. What is Mm -hmm. it you're going to do next? And the the map of life that uh, Stanford Center on Longevity is studying and researching is how do we help people to understand that this linear approach to life that we grew up with is makes no sense in fact if you ask millennials about it they just say i don't know what you're talking about so i think that's pretty interesting stuff
1: are you still on the board at burning man and do you attend every year
2: no i so i I stepped away from the boards of burning man and the eslin institute a couple of years ago year and a half ago actually burning man a year ago uh, eslin a year and a half ago and um i just was ready for something next i've been on both boards for almost 10 years and uh made a major contribution in both places and I wanted to do something new. And in terms of going to, to, I've for the longest time I went every year and for the last two years, I I did not go.
1: Do you ever see yourself retiring?
2: It depends on how you define retiring. Um, In the classic way of like, okay, I hang out on a golf course and drink, you know, mint juleps at lunchtime. No, I don't see that. Um, Do I see myself slowing down? And yes, I do see that. Um, I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not there yet. Um, but I, I am build, you know, building a home 10 minutes up the beach in a palm orchard so that my, my home is not in the middle of the campus anymore. That's smart. That's good. That's a good step chip um, because it means that the campus doesn't revolve around me. And it means that I have more spaciousness. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm moving in that direction, but I don't think I'll ever retire in the classical sense of the, of the word.
1: How's your surfing progressing?
2: God, I'm just like so struggling with it. I, I'm my Spanish is making progress, my yoga is making progress. These are the three things I really wanted to get better at in, in the last few years, but my surfing I struggle with, and it's partly because. Like with yoga until I went to one-on-one yoga, I'm comparing and contrasting too much. Uh, Unlike with yoga, when you're surfing on beaches where everybody, I know a lot of people, you have spectators too. In yoga, you don't other than the other people in the yoga class. So, But um, I sometimes sneak off to do my surfing like right at (laughs) daybreak when there's no one else there. And then I also have gotten to a place where I just laugh at myself when I'm surfing. And that actually makes it a lot better, because it's when you don't laugh at yourself when you're in the process of trying to learn something, that you quit. So, I'm getting better, estoy mejorando, which means I'm getting better, I'm not, not very good Spanish, but that is me saying, I'm getting better at my surfing. And, have, and maybe my Spanish. Have you read Barbarian Days? I have, I, I, I did, I wanted to love it. I think I had, you know, one of my, one of my um, equations in the book, emotional equations is disappointment equals expectations minus reality. My expectations were so high for that book, uh. that it never met those expectations. Um, I have two copies of it. They're in the MEA library here. I need to try it again at some point.
1: In addition to, of course, your own most recent book, Wisdom at Work, uh, are there two or three others related to any of the topics we've discussed today that you'd be willing to recommend to listeners?
2: Man's Search for Meaning, my favorite book of all time, uh, about Viktor Frankl in a concentration camp in World War II. Um, It really helps you to see that despair equals suffering minus meaning, and that despair and meaning are inversely proportional. And learning how to cultivate meaning meaning in your life is really important. Um, what else? I love the 40, uh, rules of love, which is a, a fiction book. I don't read a lot of fiction, but it's a fiction book with a really interesting story. It's about Rumi. It's about Rumi and his relationship with Shams, who is his teacher. Um, and it, it is a beautiful tale, um, written by a Turkish author, a a woman, uh, and that's one of my favorite books. And it really speaks to love in in the most... broadest sense of the word and in the sense of being curious as well um yeah what else i mean there's other i'm i'm uh, most recently i've enjoyed reading life is in the transitions by bruce feiler which is a new york Times bestseller it's all about transitions and and since mea is about transitions um i, I really appreciate that book
1: you've said that you take a weekly inventory at the end of each week of what you've learned. Uh, given that it's almost Friday, is there anything on it this week that you'd be willing to share?
2: Yeah, I think this week I learned, so recently I've learned to how to, how to slow down to the speed of partnership, um, which is what my two co-founders of MEA have asked me to do. But what I learned this week and I, that's been something I've been you know, evolving and learning into. Um, but what I learned this week is sometimes you actually have to set the pace for the partnership. And um, so that was me this week, sort of, but, but not just in actions and then say, keep up with me, but more like in conversation. Um, and let me explain why I think we need to move this quickly. And instead of just trying to just step it up and then just say, you guys keep up, more like, let me tell you why I'm moving so quickly right now. So there's an element of like, okay, that means Chip's not going to do that forever. He's doing it right now because there's a window of opportunity right now. Um, that's what I'd say one lesson. I think a second lesson has been like, wow, um, this is an in, in-the-beltway in you know, kind of thing to say, but I'm learning that people here at MEA, even though they're not in a cohort that arrived on the same day and departed on the same day and, and has a very intense developed program where they're pretty much locked together for a whole week. With sabbatical sessions, when people have everything sort of do-it-yourself and by choice, yes, there's, we have some programming. People really want connection. And we, you know, we are doing our best to make sure the connection is safe you know, for, for, by COVID standards. But um, it's really clear that, that that connection, there's a magic to this place and to why people come here that has made us realize, wow, sabbatical sessions is more profound as an experience than we thought it would be.
1: So I I wouldn't normally call this out since so many people seem quite private about their age. Um, But since you're most definitely embracing that it's okay, we're no longer 24 years old, and you also referred to this earlier in the interview, it looks like you're about to hit a milestone birthday next week. Um, What are you most excited about for yourself over your next chapter?
2: You know, I I had no idea. I'd never heard of something called the U-Curve of happiness uh, 10 years ago when I turned 50. And the U-Curve of happiness shows that uh, from about age 22 to 25 until about age 45 to 50, your happiness drops. And then you bottom out around 45 to 50, and then your happiness goes up from that that point on. Um, And my 50s are by far my favorite decade of my life. Um, And Interestingly, I am enthusiastic about my 60s maybe being better than my 50s. And so what I'm excited about is how the breadcrumbs of my life, which have led me to the next thing, are leading me to whatever's next. And I have a lot of faith that, that I'm on the right path right now. And... Um, Yeah. Uh, So I guess more than anything, I'm just excited about the journey that I'm on. I'm less focused on like, where is it taking me and what's the finish line? Um, yeah. And I'm appreciating frankly, at times being in the mystery of it all.
1: Well, Chip, thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule to be with us today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and look forward to chatting more and, uh, For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Modern Elder Academy and Chip's work there, please be sure to check out the website at ModernElderAcademy.com and Chip's blog at WisdomWell.ModernElderAcademy.com,
0: which we'll put in the show notes as well. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The video version can be watched on YouTube on the North Star Unplugged channel. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.